Have you ever been around someone uh, who just doesn't get it? I mean, you try to explain things to them, you try to show them, you even talk a little slowly with them to see if they can catch on and they just don't understand. You know, they, they continue on in, in their ignorance. You know, I, I like to say that I, I played college basketball just to get that response from people because they're like, oh, you did? Where did you play? What school? You know, that's the next question, usually thinking that it was some high-name school. And I, I say, well, I played at Appalachian Bible College. And they're like, you know, say, did you sneeze? I mean, what is that? What, where is that place? Small school, yes, yeah, small Bible school. I did play for them. I, I didn't sit the bench all the time. Uh, I had some significant minutes, I think, and uh, played some pretty good schools, I think, but mostly small Bible colleges. During the basketball time for, for that college season, I really enjoyed it, but my, during my junior year, we had this freshman come on, um, just started coming to school, and a tall guy, uh, bullish kind of guy, but not really always with it. You know, I'm going to call him Bubba. I'm not going to call his real name. We just call him Bubba. Nice guy. Not sure if the deck was full, but really nice guy. He'd get a few minutes playing once a month. Um, but he was a guy that seemed a little dense. He, he didn't seem to always understand what was going on. He couldn't catch on. And so during the, the preseason training time, we had a few weeks before the season would officially start. We could practice. I approached my coach about setting up a time that we could scrimmage to local high security prison team. Smart, huh? I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I used to work in the prison ministry when I was in college. I was one of the assistant chaplains. We'd go in early Sunday morning and, and basically preach and do the service for the prison inmates. And uh, following services, I'd occasionally step, the, the gym was right next to it, and I'd step through and, and be able to watch their open gym. Well, it wasn't really open because they're still incarcerated, but it was their time to play basketball. And they were very good. And I, I thought, well, we're preparing to play. We need some better competition as we, we train. And so I, I talked to the local chaplain and then the, the prison officials. They said, yeah, you know, it's fine. You know, there's risk coming to the prison, but yes. So I went to the coach and uh, he was like, yeah, he was all ready to go with that. He thought, this is fantastic. You know, we'll get our team ready. We'll, we'll set it up and we'll go play a scrimmage against this. So it, we set it all up, and we're, we're heading to the college. Now, West Virginia, you know, there's no straight roads in West Virginia. Do you guys know that? There's nothing. Right, Glenavy? West Virginia is curvy roads. And, and it's like 30 miles away, but it took like an hour and a half because we had to go over a mountain, basically, to get there. And So most of the guys are sick to their stomach, partly from the ride, but I think from the other vantage point of what they're about to do. You know, we're going to enter a high-security prison and play basketball and the refs are actual inmates. So it's not a good setup. You know, we get to the prison, we get through all the lines, we get in there, and we have to spend another 45 minutes filling all the paperwork out because they want to make sure we're not going to sue them if we die. So this is how it's gone. We get in there, and uh, most of the guys never told their parents what we were doing. They, they kept that to themselves. And here's Bubba on the bench. The game started, doesn't get much minutes, and he's just talking trash from the bench. And we're looking at him going, just be quiet. This is not the place to do this. And we're, he doesn't get it, doesn't get it. And so finally, I leaned over to the coach and said, put him in. He needs some real life experience. He got elbowed in the eye in the first minute, real hard, hard foul. And he just continued on, continued to talk. And, and, and it's not just him, it's affecting all of us then, because he's talking. 
And, you know, we get in the van, we're all kind of beat up, we're all kind of traumatized a little bit, and he's just going on and again about how close we were. And I'm like, we lost by 40. <laughs> and I'm like looking at him going, you don't get it. You just don't get it. So what does this have to do with John, huh? You're, I bet you're wondering that. We enter the next section of John here in John chapter 5, and, and there's a shift that's happening here in Jesus' ministry. Because the shift is from a curiosity of who Jesus is. He's this guy who he's saying things, he's doing things. It's, it seems extraordinary. Who is this guy? And it shifts and takes a sharp turn to outright rejection. You know, these Jewish leaders do not get it. They're blind to what Jesus is doing, why he's, why he's come, why is he there? Why is he stirring the pot for them? You know, they don't get it. So look at me with, if you have your Bibles open to John chapter five, verses will be on the screen here behind me. John chapter five, verses one through 15, we're gonna look at this morning. And follow with me as I read. <clears throat> After this, they were, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took, his, took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. and It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is the word of God. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, the opportunity that we have the privilege that we have to look at your word, look at the story here of the, the man at the pool and the Jewish authorities and Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would give us insight and understanding as we hear your word preached. God, I ask that you would speak this morning, that the voice that people would hear would be yours, that they would cl clearly understand what this is and what this means pray that you would be the teacher, that the Holy Spirit would be the guide. I pray that we would come away changed this morning, different than when we came in. Help us, Father. May you be honored and glorified in this time. For I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Before we dig in here to the text and the characters in this text, there's a few observations I want to make. The first is Jesus is back in Jerusalem, and where does he go? He goes to the pool where all the lame and the physically hurting people are. And in that, you see Jesus is truly a merciful Savior. The second thing I want you to notice, and hopefully you did, is that if you have the ESV or the New American Standard or NIV, you, 
you're missing verse four. You got, did you catch that? I wanted to play a trick on Johnny this week, and so I went in his office early week, and I said, hey, can you, can you tell me what verse four means in John chapter five? He opens his Bible and starts looking, and I, I set him up. I, I, I wasn't thinking out for him. But it's missing there in the ESV. There's a footnote, actually, kind of references back. You know, this is what the footnote says. If verse three starts, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then the, the footnote says, waiting for the moving of the waters. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was, was made well from whatever disease which with he was afflicted. It's not there in the, the New American Standard, the NIV or ESV. It is there in the old authorized King James Version. So, so why is it missing in the other versions? You know, the, the answer is that verse four is not in the oldest and best manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts that we have. You know, there's thousands of Greek manuscripts and some fragmented Greek manuscripts and how we come to have an incredibly reliable Greek and Hebrew and English version is that these texts are set to compare with one another. This is a very complicated and detailed process of comparison. And through this process, you can come and see that some manuscripts have different wording and they can tell almost all the time which is the original. And there are a few times where they cannot and, and in that they, they take great care to understand what it's saying there. Here in this text, it seems that somewhere along the line there's a, a copyist error, meaning he, he was writing a marginal note to explain the situation and in some texts it got into the original. It's not there when they compared all of the reliable and older versions, so therefore the ESV and NIV and New American Standard pull it out to footnote it. You know, it's, it's there, I believe, to explain verse seven as why this man's replying to Jesus. You know, it, it, when you read verse seven, it, it seems that only a few people were healed only after the water was stirred up, and if you happen to be slow, you're not healed. And so, uh, you know, it makes better sense in it, but I don't necessarily believe that's what necessarily is happening. I believe it was a superstition. It was the, the, the theory of the day as they're at this pool that that was understood that this was possibly a way to be healed. But I want you to understand this regardless of all those issues. And you could spend a lot of hours this week studying it. I encourage you to do so. But the point of all of this is that how the pool worked is not the point of the story. Okay? Don't get caught up in, in, in what's missing here, footnote or rather, foot, or not footnote or what version we should... Don't lose sight of the fact that what Jesus wants to do is he wants to show for us this morning the power is not in the pool. I should coin that term. The power is not in the pool. It's in Jesus and what he's gonna do and how he's gonna heal this man. That's the point. So there's a pool here. It has five porches, which means it's a very large pool. It has five patios or porticos that would have covering to keep the sun off people and it'd be open up for them to be there and be around the pool. The, the name of the pool and portico where it's located is, is Bethsaida, which means the house of mercy, which is significant to me because you're gonna see Jesus, our merciful Savior, work. You know, the third thing I want you to mention just briefly is that there's a large crowd of people that are gathered at this pool. You know, following the healing of this man, Jesus leaves because of the crowd. He, he doesn't want to draw the crowd yet to him at this point in his ministry. He will later, but this instance, this healing is specifically for this man and for the Jewish leaders. And so there's, there's three people, really, three groups of people, I should say, that I want you to notice here this morning. 
First is the lame man, as we've read, and then Jesus, and then the leaders. And I want you to look and listen and respond to these three types of people and how they interact and talk with Jesus in this passage. You will learn from them as we observe what God is doing in this story. And in this story, really, Jesus is confronting the Jewish legalism at its very heart. He's going in and zeroing the very heart of their legalism, and it's the Sabbath. It's this day. And he challenges the traditions with his authority as Lord of the Sabbath, as God. He heals a man. He warns him about living in sin and, then, and the need to turn from sin. And the man goes right back to the loyal, false religion that he's a part of. This damning religion as Jesus sees it and says it is. So we have three points this morning I want to cover. First is the confusion of the lame. Second, the complaints of the legalists. And third, the, the compassion of our Lord. So first, the confusion of the lame. You know, as Jesus comes to the pool called Bethsaida, he, he sees many people there, many invalids there, those that are blind and lame and paralyzed. And, and, and I had to think about this in a moment, not to, to, to go too far down this path, but we see that in our world today, not only physical ailments, lame, paralyzed, blind, but we see it very much spiritually in our world. Unbelievers are blind. They're unable to see and understand their sin. They, they grope around in darkness and unable to see the destructive nature of their sin and the destructive nature of sin in the world. And people are still lame, not in the cultural way, like, man, that's really lame, but crippled. They're crippled. They're deformed. They're unable to function without help. And before coming to Christ, we are crippled. We're unable to function the way we are intended. And then he says they're paralyzed. And boy, our world is paralyzed. If you're not a believer, you lack any power to obey God. You lack the Holy Spirit that gives the strength and power to obey. Those who are not in Christ, they're, they're lame, they're blind, they're paralyzed. They need Jesus. And Jesus enters. And John informs us that there's one man in particular, one man in particular that Jesus sees and understands and knows him. He's been in this situation for 38 years. We, we don't necessarily know all the, the man's issues, but we know from verse seven, he's unable to get himself into this pool of what he's really hoping to do. He wants to be healed. He can't get himself in. Someone has to come help him. This man is there to be healed. That's why he's at the pool. And you can see the desperation, the ignorance of, of this man and many more that are there. You know, this, this, this superstition, they, they believe it's true, and so they want to stay near this pool. They want to be in there when, when the water is stirred up, however it is. So they desperately want to be the first in line. And after 38 years, this man, I'm sure he's lost of hope of any other way of being healed, of life being any different. You know, he lives his, his life crippled and, and confused. And he, and he seems to think that this water is what's going to save him, what's going to heal him. You can even see the confusion in verse 6, right? If you see it there, Jesus asks the question. He says to him, do you want to be healed? What a simple question that is, right? What an easy answer that would seem. But he obviously doesn't understand who Jesus is. He, he hasn't heard about Jesus. He hasn't seen him. He's been at the pool. He's wanting to get healed. He's not going to move. He's not going to pass up his spot. He's waiting for his opportunity, and he's, he's focused on what will heal him. And for him, 
It's this water. It's this pool. He believes that it's it. So as verse 7 says, his response, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I'm going in, another steps in in front of me. And Jesus mentions nothing about the pool. He doesn't bring up this as an opportunity to get him into the pool. He, he doesn't talk about the healing properties of the water. He just asks, do you want to be healed? But this man believes the only way to be healed is to get into that water. John Calvin writes about verse 7. He says, this diseased man does what almost all of us are wont to do, for he limits the assistance of God according to his own thought and does not venture to promise to himself anything more than he conceives in his own mind. He can only go this far. He can't think anything more. It's got to be the water, Jesus. I think Jesus needs anything on earth to heal. Do you think he has the power to deliver people from their infirmities? Is the Lord able to heal this man without that pool? Jesus is not limited by our imagination in, in desperate situations. Do you want to know? Do you want to know who Jesus is? Do you want to understand who he is? Do you want to have power in your life for circumstances to work through the difficulties of life? Here is the way to do it. Are you ready? For 1995, I'll tell you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you read his word. That's how you know God. You read his word. You study the word. You look to understand the word. You apply the word. You obey the word. And that last part is the most important part because so many struggle. They, they say, yes, I understand this. I want to go to God's word. I want to read and understand it. But they, la they stop. They stop short. And that final step of obedience, obedience to what God's word says. And when obedience happens, it sinks really deep into people's life. They understand who Jesus is and they want to follow him at whatever cost. And so when you read and you study and you obey, you walk out of your house each day, living and working, and you do it under, with the understanding that, G, that God is gracious to you, that God is sovereign, that God is merciful, that he's powerful. And then you don't have to live your life within the walls of your imagination of how God should work. He can work outside of that. That he's there, he's present, he's able to work in your life right where you are. And so don't live in the confusion of who God is like the lame man here who puts it in a box. And that's the only way something will change. We should live in the reality of who God is and how he revealed himself through his word. You have the Bible don't, don't ever get over that fact that you have the Bible in your hands. You know, if, you, if that's just passing thought to you, talk to missionaries that are striving, that are giving their very lives so that they can translate the text into the heart language of someone else. They've given up all their comfort to go do this, and yet we have the Bible. I don't, how many, I don't know how many Bibles I have on my shelf. I have so many. I don't want to take that for granted because that's how we know God. As we have the word, we can read the word, we can study the word, we can memorize the word, and we can obey the word. So don't neglect that. Don't put that aside. If you don't have a Bible, we have some out here. We want to give them to you. You have your own copy. That's how we know God. That's how we, we learn about God. That's how we follow him is through his word. There's power in that. 
So we've seen the confusion of the lame. The next is the complaints of the legalist. You know, this lame man had a, had a chronic problem, okay? He, he could have been healed the next day. I mean, 38 years, Jesus could have waited 24 more hours, right? He could have just put it off one more day because the day that he heals him is the Sabbath. So he obviously doesn't know the cultural cues, right? Jesus doesn't get it. Why would he do this? Why would he take this day, this day that was so important to these Jewish leaders and say, this is the day I'm gonna heal him? Well, he has a point. It wasn't an accident. Jesus, he doesn't need an iPhone calendar to know what day it is. He knows. And he chooses the Sabbath. He deliberately chooses the Sabbath because he knew that this would incite anger in the leaders of Israel. And he knew that when they would see this man walking, carrying his bed, their hearts would be on full display and be completely exposed. And you read it here in the text, verse nine. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So when the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Jesus knows what he's doing here. Jesus simply tells him, carry your bed and walk. He, he knows this is gonna cause an uproar to the leadership. He knows their hearts. He knows their actions. And, and remember, Jesus grew up there, so he had observed all of this, the fanatical ways of the Jewish leaders. He knew what they were teaching. He knew what they were living and how they were promoting it. And he's about to expose this. The Jewish leaders had perverted the law, and they turned it into a competition, a, a sport of sorts. You know, here's what R. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, okay? about the, the, the law-keeping of these leaders. He says, but eventually religious people began to protect the Sabbath by their own prohibitions added to those of Scripture, uh, bringing about 39 series of laws. And these extra laws constituted a hedge around the Sabbath, but it was man-made hedge. For example, looking in a mirror was forbidden. The rationale was that if you looked into the mirror on a Sabbath day and you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out and thus perform work on the Sabbath. For some of you, it's more of a hazard than others. <laughs> you could also not wear your false teeth because if they fell out, you would have to pick them up and you would thus be performing work. All kinds of obscure meanings and conversations center around the Sabbath. You could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear one. That meant if you went upstairs and wanted to take a handkerchief downstairs, you would have to tie it around your neck, walk downstairs and untie it. The Jews even debated about a man with a wooden leg, namely if his home caught on fire, could he carry his wooden leg out of the house on the Sabbath? Traveling was forbidden on Sabbath. A journey was limited to a thousand yards, but if you wanted to extend your walk, you could tie a rope at the end of your street as much as a thousand yards away. You could walk an additional thousand yards farther because you extended your household a thousand yards. You could spit on the Sabbath, but you had to be careful where you spit. If you spit on the dirt and then scuffed up with your sandal, you would be cultivating the soil and performing work. Folks, I don't make this stuff up. There's more. I'm not going to read it this morning. 
And I had the same reaction. You know, I'm reading through this and, and kind of musing about it, laughing. I can't believe the ridiculousness. And then God stopped me short right in that moment and said, this is real. People believe this. So you read in Matthew 23 that the burden of the law was too heavy for people. It was too heavy for them to follow. It was impossible. And here's what you need to take. Here's what you need to log away is that these leaders had essentially perverted the Sabbath and made it the worst possible day of the week. No one looked forward to the Sabbath. Because that day brought serious bondage to their life. What a misuse. Can you understand Jesus' anger towards this now? These people had taken something that God had given to them and they manipulated it and they perverted it to the way they wanted it. And Jesus is not going to have anything to do with that. This was the goal of the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders. They didn't, they didn't care that God was in the flesh standing right there in front of them. They're going to keep this law. They're going to keep these rules. You know, Luke 6 is another story of the same stuff. Luke 6, verse 6, he says, On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, and he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They wanted to kill him because he dared break the rules. This was their Sabbath. It was no longer God's Sabbath. This day was the focal point that exposed their hearts the most, their self-righteousness, their legalist hearts. And Jesus is declaring to them, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Now Mark 2, he says that emphatically. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the lame man comes walking towards them, holding his bed, and they want to know, who did this? Why are you doing this? Who told you you could carry your bed? A miracle? Who cares about a miracle? I don't care that you were lame for 38 years. You're carrying your bed. These are legalists. The sad part is, so I was finishing up my sermon yesterday. I came across a blog post that was just put up yesterday by Tim Challies in his blog because there's still many Jews still under this bondage. He was writing about a friend who works as a paramedic in the Toronto area. His name's Murray. He says that Murray was responding to a call on a hot summer afternoon. After he completed the call, he was walking back to his ambulance and saw a man outside a neighboring home waving at him to come over. This man led Murray into a very hot home and explained that his mentally disabled son had inadvertently turned off the air conditioning and they could not turn it back on without violating the Sabbath laws. And he pointed to the thermostat and asked Murray, could you please turn it back on? And Murray flipped a little plastic switch and the air conditioner immediately came back on. 
The man and his family were exuberant with their gratitude. And as Murray spoke to the man and he speaks to other members of the community, he sometimes asks them whether he should become Jewish. Wouldn't this be the path for him to live in obedience to God and to experience a divine blessing? And their answer as his family is no. Don't become Jewish. You become Jewish, you have to obey the law, the whole law, and the law is a heavy burden. Oh, what a testimony, huh? This is the burden that people were under. This is why Jesus came to his people. And they still miss it and they still live under it. They're confused. They're stuck. And Jesus sees this. He sees the confusion of the lame. He hears the, the complaints of the legalists. And what's his response? Well, third is, is the compassion of the Lord. You see the compassion of Jesus. You know, the irony is not lost in me. Jesus is coming to this pool and this place is called the house of mercy. And what is he going to do? He is going to show mercy. Our merciful Lord is going to display to us what mercy is and why it's needed in this world. Maybe you're asking this morning, what is mercy? How, do you, how would we define mercy? Mercy is concerned with the relief of pain and alienation and distress caused by sin. When you read or see cases of sickness, like the one in the story, you should remember how deeply we should hate sin. We don't entertain sin, we hate sin. And I'm not talking necessarily about specific sin, as maybe a person's sin, which sometimes illness or, or deficiencies happen because of that. I'm talking about sin as whole. Sin was the original root and cause of every disease in this world. God did not create man to be full of sickness and diseases. These are a result of the fall. We have cancer in our world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. The fall introduced that into our world. There would be no sickness in our world without sin. And so when we see that, it should cause an uproar in our hearts to hate sin. Not only in the world, but in our hearts. And the basic meaning of mercy is to give help to the wretched to relieve the miserable, to give, to act in compassion to the suffering and needy. So when I say compassion, it's not simply feeling compassion. It's an action taken to relieve the distress. It's pity plus action. It is active goodwill. You know, there are at least nine times that I counted in the gospels where it says that Jesus was moved to compassion or pity for someone that he observed. He felt compassion, he saw the need, and he was moved to do something about that, to alleviate the misery. And Jesus, if you're reading the story here, he seeks out this man. He comes to this man to relieve the suffering that he's facing. And he heals him, and then walks. In verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The issue, what's, what is it? 
The issue is holiness, mainly not health. He says, I've healed you to make you holy. You see, no faith by this man. is not a healing based on faith. It's just healing. Jesus heals him. And he's saying to him, I've made you well. Now you need to live your life differently than before. Away from the sin that has so plagued your life because you're an unbeliever. And Jesus is preaching to him. He's saying 38 years of this tragic sickness is, is a result of sin. Whether it's specific about him or the world, I don't know. God does. But he's not saved. And he says, do not continue in your life of sin. And the reason is, is because hell will be worse than the pain you've experienced these last 38 years. And what does this man do? What is his response to this? In verse 15, he ignores Jesus. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is astonishing to me as I read this. This man lives, lives almost four decades, 38 years with terrible suffering, sitting near the pool, hoping watching person after person going in, probably not seeing any difference come out, but still hoping that he could be healed. Nothing changes, and he goes back the same day. He stays there probably. Hopes, just, I, I just need to get into the water. I, I, I just need to be healed from this. And Jesus comes, and he says, do you want to be healed, and then heals him. And what does he do? What's his response? He turns his back on Jesus, and he rats him out to the authorities. He knew that the Jews hated Jesus, and he turned him in anyways. He knew that they were after him, and he doesn't care. He is trapped in a false religion. You know, someone can, I, I see that someone can get so close to God himself in the flesh to be affected physically, personally, and then turn away and, and look the other direction and sentence Jesus to death. And this has to be the most startling act of ingratitude and selfishness for all the healings that Jesus does during his time in the Gospels. This man has no interest in Jesus. He has no intention of following Jesus. But you know what's more astonishing than all of that? that Jesus knew that would be his reaction. He's God. He wasn't shocked. He wasn't, oh, well, whoops. I thought he would really turn to me. He knows his heart. He's not caught off guard. He knows what's going to happen, and yet what does Jesus do? He shows this man mercy. He doesn't do it to get a reaction. He just does it to show mercy. He defines mercy for us. He displays mercy for us. So I ask, are you merciful? Are you known to others around you to be a merciful person? Are you one to stick to the rules no matter what? Why does it matter? Why is it important that we're merciful? 
because Jesus came to earth, because Jesus turned water into wine, because Jesus fed the multitudes, because Jesus gave sight to the blind, because Jesus stops at the well to talk to the social outcast, because Jesus heals the official son, because Jesus comes to this man who doesn't care and heals him anyways. You know, Jesus touches the untouchable throughout his ministry. He loves those that are unlovable. He forgives those that are unforgivable. And he heals those that are unwilling. And he saves us who are unsavable. Do we deserve it? Titus says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, not because we met him halfway, not because we pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps and lived a good life, not because we went to church every week, not because we went to Awana, not because we're in Sunday school, not because of anything. He does it because of his mercy. He saves us because of his mercy. You know, we are here this morning, church, because Jesus doesn't respond with indifference and coldness and hardness and says, just leave them alone. They brought it on themselves. He, he pities the woman at the well. He pities the official and the dying son. He pities the cripple by the pool. He pities the thief and he pities the liar and he pities the abuser. And don't fool yourself for one moment. Jesus Christ pities the educated and the self-sufficient and the elite and the moral and the religious. Folks, Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And when he sees us in our misery, he doesn't just feel for us. He takes action. Jesus leaves the eternal glory of heaven, the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, and comes down and condescends to us. And he lives among us, and he suffers like us, and then he dies for us. So how can anyone claim that the mercy of God does not take sin seriously? He most definitely does. God sends his own son to die on the cross for the miserable people like you and like me. He is a merciful God. Church, this is good news. This is the gospel that God gave up his son to atone for our sins on the cross. This is the point of communion. This morning we get to celebrate communion. We get to remember again this morning that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, that he conquered the grave and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want to encourage you when the bread is being passed out to think, to remember that Jesus endured on the cross, the beatings he took to pay the penalty for our sin. I want you to remember and to realize this morning that you cannot pay for your sins, but he paid for it. 
Jesus did what you couldn't do. His body was broken for you. And when the cup is passed, remember the shed blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He poured out his own blood to cover every single one of our sins. I remember that this morning, that salvation that was accomplished for us over 2,000 years ago, that we need to live in daily remembrance of that, of what he did for us. So as the men come forward this morning to serve morning's communion, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come before your throne in awe. Even as we read this story and, and, and look through it, God, you knew that this man would just reject you. And yet you showed mercy to him. And you healed him. You knew in your ministry on earth when you were preaching and teaching that people would reject you. And even from the cross, you cry out. They don't know. They don't understand. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for enduring the cross on our behalf. Please make it afresh in our hearts this morning, the remembrance of what you did on the cross. God, please plant the seed of gratefulness deep within our hearts as we take the bread and we take the juice. And I pray that you're honored in this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.